we're back, and we're talking science. We now know that evolution can be more complicated than Charles Darwin suspected. Uh, for example, we now know that genes can actually jump species. In an era of GMOs, this matter of genes jumping species has become very important. We did have a fascinating chat on that very subject with UC Berkeley professor Ignacio Chapella. Chapella had argued that genes from GMO corn were polluting the gene pool of Mexican plants that humanity is going to need to depend upon to get fresh genetic material in the future. For corn, that is. Anyway, this is from show 146. Uh, we should just backtrack a bit to, for our audience about what happened when you reported on findings of genetically modified corn in Mexico that people had said simply wouldn't be found, but you and your research assistants found it anyway. Even though it evidently had major consequences, we found pieces of the DNA of the heritable material from industrial transgenic corn in the genome within the cells of the local land races, the local varieties that farmers grow in Mexico, in the southern state of Oaxaca. The startling discovery was really to find it there because um, Mexico had and continues to have to this day a ban on uh, the planting of transgenic corn anywhere. So the nearest legal field of transgenic materials, transgenic plants, should have been hundreds of miles away. So right. finding this DNA within the local land races was pretty startling. Now, one thing I think we want to emphasize, when I, when I got my degree at biological sciences here at this university back in the late 19, 1970s, there was much emphasis on retaining genetic variability from the various seed crops around the world. And what that involved was going back to where the crops originated, because that's where you find the greatest variability. I don't think people realize when we talk about Mexico, that is the center from which corn came, thereby magnifying the effect of having a contamination of the original sources of corn. Exactly right. That, that really is, uh, is the significance of it. Specifically, this area in Oaxaca is the place where we know the oldest uh, remnants of domesticated corn. So we believe that this is where corn was actually domesticated, in these very places, about 10,000 years ago. And it has been kept by people that long in these areas. I remember it being talked about when I was a student that you'd go to Ethiopia where they felt you could get original varieties of wheat. And, and yet what we're talking about right now, one of the great important side issues in this, this matter of genetic uh, transmodified uh, food, is that this will supplant all over the world the numerous varieties that farmers have retained for their own seed crop. That's right. That, that really is the problem. As you say, each, each crop, each of the major crops uh, originated obviously in a given place on planet Earth. You know, rice in Southeast Asia, potatoes in the Andes, corn in Mexico, and so on. And it is in these places where we uh, have the repository of diversity that we need for the future. Uh, every time that a new pest or a new disease or the environment changes, uh, we need to go back to those places and find genes that can be reinserted into the industrial crop to maintain productivity. So losing that diversity is something that we should all be very concerned about. It didn't stop in the 70s, you know, that's very much actual still today. This whole thing is a topic we return to on several occasions on this program. That seed bank up on the island of Svalbard is an effort to preserve for posterity valuable genetic materials. And 
I do have to say it's been a bit frustrating for us to explain over and over on this show that GMOs pose a danger to humanity, not because of the crops themselves, but more importantly, because of this disappearance of other examples of critical plants. No doubt hit it again at some point in the future. We enjoyed a chat we had with author Kurt Ebsmeyer about his book, Flotsometrics, which is a look at the ever-increasing number of things that float about on the high seas. This is from show 363. We talked about the, the gyres in the ocean, and at, at the center of them uh, these days, we find these immense patches of garbage, mostly plastic, and apparently you've also coined the term we're now using for these garbage patches. Uh, the scope of this problem is just coming into focus. Can you talk about the, the immensity of these things? They're huge. I mean, the one that we started noticing them when we were doing the uh, drift of the ducks, the ducks would escape the gyre up in uh, the northern gyre or the Aleut gyre between uh, Japan and Alaska, and they would escape and head south, and a lot of them wound up going round and round in a giant circle between uh, Hawaii and uh, California, measured about 500 miles across, looked to be several times the size of Texas, and I kept getting uh, letters from mariners saying, gee, I sailed through the area, and I, when the wave would set down, I'd see glass walls, and I'd see refrigerators and tires and stuff, and, and slowly I began to see that the Oscars, the computer model, was um, actually showing this, and I said, I coined the term, I said, Jim, we were kind of, maybe had a beer or so, and, and uh, I said, it looks like a garbage patch to me, and the uh, term caught on. Well, you know, when we announced that you'd be on the show a few weeks ago, a caller, Jake, asked me to ask you a question, which I think I will do, which was, why can't we send these whaling boats that people don't like to be killing whales out to haul in some of that trash from the garbage patches? Excellent idea. I've had the same thought about why can't we use the the navies around the world to, when they're not fighting a hot war, go out and you know, collect it. Basically, most of it is is small. You need a cheesecloth to kind of you have to tow a very fine mesh net to catch it because plastic doesn't doesn't ever degrade. It just it just fractions into ever smaller pieces, and when it gets down to the size of table salt, it starts looking like plankton, and it gets into the food chain. So that's the size we're dealing with. And I thought, well, gee, if, if the navies of the world went out into the garbage patches of the world and towed cheesecloth, we could clean this up. So. Uh, Jake put his finger on it. <laughs> yeah. You uh, you know, the thing in your book that just scared the hell out of me, frankly, was talking about those little plastic bits getting smaller and smaller and actually acting like little sponges for toxins, which then get uh, into the food chain. Uh, what can we do about this? Use less plastic? Yeah, that's a very good point. The nasty chemicals in the ocean absorb and kind of go right onto the surface of the plastic. And so when when the food chain absorbs these little doses of Kind of little bombs of plastic uh, and toxins. It's they're really nasty, and I'm afraid we can't really. There's no effective way of cleaning it up. I'm afraid, but the most effective thing we can do is to shift from petroleum-based plastic, that is plastic made from crude oil, which is probably 99% of it now, to uh, a green plastic, which is made from corns, and a kind of plastic that will dissolve back to its constituent elements like right. nitrogen. And, that kind of thing. So we have the technology. We just have to find the will to use it. You know, from the good news department, uh, you, you note that uh, petroleum, like in crude oil spills, maybe aren't as bad as people think because uh, nature's bacteria does know how to digest oil. 
and so that uh, maybe oil spills aren't as a big a concern as, as, they, as they are to some people. Oil has been around since the living creatures, and you know, the natural environment knows how to deal with it because there's a lot of natural oil seeps and a lot of oil in the water. But as soon as you refine it into plastic, uh, you're talking about something that nature hasn't evolved any strategy to deal with. So we have a, we have a difficulty there. Uh, what I was trying to get at is that there's so many things that go into the ocean that are uh, really nasty, a lot nastier than oil, like uh, we had a spill from a container ship of seven containers holding 2,000 computer monitors. Computer monitors, when they're washed up on the beach in California and Washington, are considered hazardous waste. When they fall overboard, there's no requirement that they be cleaned up. There's no requirement when they wash up on shore that they actually be cleaned up. So I, I find this, this schizophrenic behavior uh, really appalling. The cathode ray tube is wrapped. It has a lot of lead wrapping, and computer monitors have these uh, circuit boards that have a lot of chemicals in them. And so there's a lot of things that fall in the ocean that are far more hazardous than um, crude oil. And for example, uh, the container industry told me, said, well, gee, we only lose two to 10,000 containers a year out of a 100 million ship. That's a pretty good accidental rate. I said, well, that may be true, but one container can hold uh, one million plastic shopping bags, uh. and one is lethal can be lethal to a sea turtle, and five million is more than the population of the sea turtle. So one container can be catastrophic. So I, I see again this false reasoning. Big topic, which is that of the collapse of insect populations around the world, led us to British author Oliver Milliman to talk about his book, The Insect Crisis. This is show number 943. In my backyard, Mr. Milliman, I got two apricot trees that are in bloom. I know I can expect fruit if the insects do their job, but I did check yesterday and observe fewer pollinators than what was once normal. Now, I can do without fruit, but crops dependent upon insects, if they see declines, the world's going to be in trouble, will it not? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we rely upon um, insects and other pollinators to provide us about a third of the world's food crops in terms of their propagation. So, um, you know, without uh, bees and flies and other pollinating insects, we'd be without, you know, apples and cranberries and uh, almonds, melons, blueberries, cherries. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean... We'd even be without uh, chocolate because uh, it's a tiny midge that uh, uh, crawls within the cacao plant to, to pollinate it. So a lot of the kind of uh, delicious things in our life, but also uh, the most nutritionally important things in our life um, would be gone without insects. And there are already concerns being raised by United Nations and other groups around a potential pollination crunch whereby uh, an expanding global population is happening at the same time as a pollination deficit. And that's leading concerns about um, food security, uh, potential malnutrition due to um, uh, a decline in pollination. Yeah, I was surprised about that line you had in the book about get rid of flies and you get rid of chocolate. <laughs> but uh, it's more than people realize. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, cardamom, coriander, cumin, I mean, all the, all the ingredients for good curry would be would be gone. Um Alfalfa is pollinated by insects, and that's what uh, the primary diet of dairy that produces, uh, sorry, the cattle that produce um, uh, dairy, that, so therefore no ice cream. I mean, um, unless you're into the vegan stuff, of course. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a kind of broad sweep of things that's a reliance upon um, uh, on insects, and it is very much the kind of colorful stuff on the plate, the, the stuff that you need nutritionally for, for a good balanced diet. And, 
there's uh, was one kind of alarming piece of research I came across in the in the, the writing of the book is in that um, an extra million deaths a year globally are expected due to heart disease and other conditions because of that pollination deficit and therefore nutrition deficit if these trends continue. Wow. Well, the stats on insect declines are disturbing. You've documented many of them uh, in the book from around the world. Um, are there some that really jump out at you as the most alarming? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think being a kind of environmental writer, I, I never really thought about the world of insects as being hugely consequential or, or indeed in any kind of danger. I mean, I mean they seem ubiquitous, don't they, um, mm-hmm. insects? You, we never ever think of them as being in shortage. Um, I mean, they are three quarters of all named life on this on this world. They're the kind of closest animals to us, really, other than our pets. Sometimes they feel a bit too close, don't they, when <laughs> we're thinking about uh, fleas and mosquitoes and cockroaches and so on. But uh, it was about kind of 2017, 2018 that these studies started coming out, several of them in succession, showing these kind of quite startling declines in, in insect numbers. And it was really the kind of first time, I think, that, the scientific world, and they're, they're, therefore the media started to kind of get their heads around what might be happening out there. I think one of the big landmark pieces of research was this study from Germany uh, where this entomological group had been um, collecting data there um, for decades, and one of the few groups out there really to collect numbers on de- uh, numbers and data on insect numbers because previously everybody thought, what was the point? There's so many of them, well, why would you bother? Um, collating these trends and what they found was astonishing I mean they had these uh, traps in um, 63 protected nature areas across Germany and um, they noticed they were catching fewer and fewer insects and they crunched the numbers with some outside scientists to help Um, they found that since 1989 the annual average rate of flying insects um, had fallen by 76% Having established that there really is a problem here we asked Mr. Millman what we might do about it I would ask you to give our listeners some marching orders. Uh, there's a lot of people that are going to hear this program. Uh, what would you, what would you have them do to help our six-legged friends? If they do have a, a backyard, just know that they can provide a haven, and you know you don't, you can't solve the problem yourself, but you can help. So you can lay off the chemicals at home. You can let the grass grow a little bit. You can plant some native plants. Look at what's in your area that's native, the native pollinators. Uh, feed upon and and plant that rather than just what you think is you know the most attractive range of flowers around yourself um try and try and eat organic if you can i mean again it's not going to solve the problem um you know you can't easily usually do that but it, it, a little bit will help maybe think about you know obviously bigger things around who you vote for and what you're campaigning for you know um a lot of the things that benefit insects will benefit us too React on climate change, um, habitat destruction, uh, reducing pesticides. These are all things that will help us all as well as insects. So try and support policies that do those things. Those, those would be the main things I would uh, suggest. All right. We have surely done more science and technology in this program, although when we talk about big tech, we've been trying to make up ground there. But at any rate, uh, NASA's moon landings were, were really one of our tech favorites. And author Jay Barbary weighed in on that matter regarding his book on astronaut Neil Armstrong. This is from show 630. 
Well, I want to talk a little bit about those Edwards Air Force uh, days. Of course, you, you make passing mention in the fact that this whole milieu was what uh, Tom Wolfe would later write about in, in The Right Stuff, a, a celebrated book and later a movie. And, and I gather that Neil Armstrong uh, didn't really think that that book maybe got it quite right. Uh, how, how do you think he would have described those times at Edwards? Well, first of all, uh, Tom Wolfe, uh, who is a great writer, and it's not up to me to put him down, but Neil is right. Neil thought it was a great yarn, made a great movie, but it was terrible history. Hmm. That's his exact quote. He says it was the wrong people at the wrong time. In other words, he had people doing stuff in this book that they were supposed to be doing in the 60s, and they didn't do it in the 60s. They did it in the 50s and some in the 40s, like Chuck Yeager broke, broke the sound barrier in 1947 on October the 14th. Well, they had Chuck Yeager in there flying with these same guys that were flying a decade later and all. And uh, so anyway, Dill just thought it was terrible because they didn't get too much of it right. He was a stickler for being of accuracy. He was a person you didn't want to be around when you're trying to do something because he was just so slow and so precise at it, it would take forever, and he'd get on your nerves. <laughs> and so a lot of people didn't like that. And uh, he told me after the uh, rights, uh, after First Man came out, his uh, biography by Jim Hansen, who was a NASA historian, and he's also a professor at Auburn University now. He had DC just looked at me and he says, I didn't I didn't have anything to do with that book. I just gave it all to Jim and Jim wrote it. <laughs> what he meant was he didn't try to help Jim write it. I'm sure that was the greatest gift he could give to Jim because he would have probably drove him nuts <laughs> while Jim was trying to write the book. You, you didn't you didn't get into it too much, but I, I gather it really is true that uh, methodical though he may have been back when he was a young man, Neil Armstrong really did get a pilot's license before he got a license to drive a car. He oh sure he did. He see you couldn't get a pilot's license until you were 16. You could get a student permit when you were 14, which he had it. It was within a day or so of Neil's 16th birthday that he got his. Uh, uh, pilot's license, and then he finally got around to getting a driver's license, you know. Well, it so happens that Ms. Marillan and I once had breakfast uh, as part of our efforts to bring you interesting radio. Breakfast with General Chuck Yeager. And uh, that, that fine morning, he told us a tale of flying with Neil Armstrong that was pretty hilarious. But I think what we're going to do is we're going to save that for a future show. One science author we could not get enough of was Mary Roach. She's spoken to us on four occasions now. Her book, Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex, was a blast. And we talked with her about how science had finally made its way into studying sex. This comes from show 359. You note that as recently as the 1960s, physiology text basically skipped over the topic of sex. And one can certainly uh, see why that was, uh, you know, something people didn't want to get into. When you mentioned this case of Vern Bullo, I guess, he landed on the FBI's list of dangerous Americans for subversive activities, evidently for publishing scholarly papers on prostitution and working to decriminalize oral sex. What shocks me, this is in the 1970s. It's kind of astounding. Even if someone's doing a uh, work in the area of venereal disease. There was a, the, the very first person to publish a paper on venereal disease in a, in, um, a gynecological publication was booed off the stage. I mean, that, that, that's not helping anybody. The problem is that anytime you do a paper or a research project in the area of sex, if you just if you just try to describe it to someone like, well, we've got some 
women coming in and they'll be observing pornography and we'll be wiring them up to a machine. Well, it sounds completely funky. You just, it, but then when you understand why it's being done and what the goal of the research is and the fact that there's really no other way to do it, you begin to understand that it's just their job. Well, you, you, you mentioned Alfred Kinsey a, a second ago. He's a rather, rather famous name in the study of sex. I was quite uh, surprised to learn from your book that he was not merely this questionnaire type of researcher I thought he was. Uh, you mentioned the movie camera. Apparently, he really got into his work quite heavily. Yeah, people associate him with those kind of encyclopedic surveys of sexual behavior, you know, sitting down one-on-one -on -one and asking people about their sexual practices. And while that is his best-known work, he also got interested in the physiology. He didn't, because it was the 40s, uh, late 40s, he didn't really, uh, he didn't really feel he could have a laboratory uh, on campus and, and, and do physiological work in that setting. He did it up in his attic, uh, sort of in secret. And of course that makes it look even worse. Like, What's going on up there? We're hearing all kinds of weird things. So, but yeah, he was, uh, he was up there taking notes and filming and, uh, it was quite a rollicking time apparently. And we had just about as much fun when she came back to speak with us about her book, Packing for Mars. This is show 426. As we close, I wanted to bring up my, um, my favorite single anecdote from the many you have in the book. After NASA elected early on to send chimps on their first space flights, this, this sort of bruised the egos of a lot of the astronaut corps. And so some years later, they elected to honor the grave of Ham, the first chimp that was sent up. Someone had the bad judgment to invite Alan Shepard to attend the <laughs> ceremony. And he apparently still had some ill will toward his rival primate in space. I don't know what the, the publicity people were thinking. Because, the, the, yes, uh, there, there's this great anecdote about how on the trailer that took the, both the, the chimps and the astronauts, Mercury astronauts, out to the gantry, there was a you know, they plotted Alan Shepard's trajectory, and then someone from the veterinary department plotted Ham's higher and farther, because Ham actually went higher and farther than Alan Shepard did. He said they ripped that card down right away. <laughs> right away. So, yeah, they, uh, they, they didn't mingle much, the, uh, the Ham group and the Alan Shepard and the, the Mercury 7. I also want to note, too, to please note, you vindicated the first chimp in orbit, Enos. He apparently got a bad rap from some space historians. Yeah, Enos had a nickname. Enos the penis, and, and there have been a couple, there's a rumor that started, one of the space writers, popular uh, chroniclers of space, said that this was because Enos had a, a habit of touching himself, and that there was this all, that, and then it kind of went from there, people were talking about how they devised the balloon catheter to prevent him from touching himself, there, were, there was a story about him pulling his diaper down at a press conference, and then the light bulbs come off, anyway, um, I called Enos's handlers, uh, who are in their seven? The two of them they are in their seventies now. And the, the guy said, "Enus, his that, his nickname had nothing to do with that. Who told you this? We called him Enus the Penis because he was such a son of a gun. He was a <laughs> I won't use the slang. Right. But anyway, he um, he said, no, that's not true. Who told you that? But I tracked it back to like four different books, and it would change slightly in each telling. And you know, Enus was uh, you know, because I, I had a chapter, I have a chapter on sex and space, and I thought, oh, here we go. Well, here's the first orgasm in space. It was Enos, and I was all excited. But, yeah, in fact, poor Enos. I cleared his name. I, I applaud your, your, your efforts for doing, doing exactly that. And speaking of sex, as we just were, uh, uh, one of our all-time favorite conversations was with the author Pope Brock about his book, Charlatan in which he outlined the astounding tale of one of the 20th century's great medical quacks, Dr. John Brinkley. And in writing that out, we should probably put doctor in quotes. 
This is from show 720. Can we talk about how Brinkley got, got, be, got to be known as Goat Gland Brinkley? This was the practice that put him on the map. This was after he had knocked around uh, a little after the turn of the century as a um, so-called electromedic doctor. He'd been trying various sort of minor quackeries, searching for the thing that would really make his name and make his fortune. And uh, at the time, although it's largely forgotten today, there was this buzz, um, not just nationally, but internationally, about the whole idea of glands and what glands could do, the magic of glands, um, the uh, pancreatic um, connection to uh, diabetes. This is about the time that they are discovering that the pancreas produces insulin, so it's a big, it's a, it's a big breakthrough taking place right then. Yes, exactly, and that helped lend credibility to all of these other nutball theories about what glands could do. And this was coming out of uh, France and deeper into Europe, Russia, and, and also into America. Now, there was, a, there was a guy named Dr. Voronoff in France who sincerely believed that uh, implanting monkey glands, uh, you know, talking about monkey testicles into men, and various uh, sort of arrangements of other monkey glands into females, could make a person live for 150 years. I mean, he, he devoted 20, 25 years of his career uh, to trying to prove this. He, he, he really believed it. And there was a, a guy named um, Lidston, uh, a professor of, um, medical professor at the University of Illinois. He, he actually surgically gave himself an extra testicle because he believed it would prolong his life and, uh, and, and uh, you know, power him further on. So, I mean, but these, these, were, these were true believers. Brinkley, what, what Brinkley's particular sliver of genius was, was to take these gropings of, of, of other sincere doctors, researchers, and turn them into this fantastic quackery, which was to, in a phrase, transplant goat testicles into impotent men. In a, in, in a phrase, that was, his, uh, that, that was what he sold. Um, it started when a farmer came uh, wandering into his tiny little clinic in a little town in Kansas in 1917. He was complaining about how he couldn't get it going anymore, and they're looking out the window and <laughs> the livestock, and uh, the farmer says, uh, too bad I don't have billy goat nuts. And the light bulb went off, and... <laughs> history began. So, so I, it, it's a little unclear who paid who for the original experiment, but one way or another, the farmer lay down, Brinkley brought in uh, the goat nuts, stuck them in, and sent the guy off. And um, a couple weeks later, you know, after the healing process and all, the, the farmer comes back, he's got a big, uh, big smile on his face. About a year later, he and his wife had a baby, baby boy, named it Billy. Brinkley's name was made. You can imagine how this... Uh, this just rolled, the publicity just rolled out of Kansas and all over the place, in part because, of course, so much of um, what makes a man potent or not uh, lives in the mind. Right. And as long as, as, as long as the patient didn't get infected, there was a fairly good chance that he was going to uh, believe um, he had been helped. This really strikes me because doctors today could have used like high quality testosterone, and it's a, that has a very minor role to play in in, in treating impotence. But here's a, here's Brinkley putting a, a goat testicle inside the body. It's just going to get reabsorbed. I mean, it can't work very well at all. And yet he was a sensation. He, he was. Well, he was a, a master psychologist and a master propagandist. I mean, before long, he had people. You know, streaming into town with trailing goats behind him, banging on his door, and 
you know, pretty soon he had his own herd of goats out back, and the, the, the man would go out and browse the herd and choose the goat he felt most simpatico with. And it was just, uh, it, it sounds nuts now, but it, it um, and it, well, it, it was, it was. But uh, he he was so good at, at the personal touch, and with this radio station that he set up as early as 1923, which was very, very early, he saw the potential for radio advertising, and that's how he you know, kept pumping the word out and bringing in more customers. Finally, we, we learned at some point about a book uh, with Parallax in its title. Astronomer Alan Hirschfield wrote a book titled Parallax, The Race to Measure the Cosmos. Now, in case you should still be unaware of this fact, parallax is a term that describes the difference between different perspectives, such as in how your left eye sees a different world than your right, or, or how the... Um, the heavens change as the Earth orbits the sun, or, or for that matter, what one might discuss on a radio program. When it comes to the Earth's almost 200 million mile change in position as it orbits the sun, you know, over six months from one side to the other, stars could potentially move against their background. That's if, and that's a rather big if, if it's a rather close by star, at least by stellar standards. This whole thing was a great example of how it is something is simple in theory, but vexing in practice. And Dr. Hirschfeld weighed in on this on show 268. By the 1800s, it was realized by every astronomer that what they were looking for, these wobbles, were extremely, extremely tiny. And the only way to detect them would be very, very careful observations with very high-quality instruments, very stable instruments that didn't wobble, that had no optical defects or anything of that, that sort. It was the, the first instance of real precision measurement in astronomy. And this was something that Friedrich Bessel in Germany was very, very good at. He was extremely patient and meticulous as an observer. So he did observe this star, 61 Cygni, over the course of a year, through the very frigid German winter also. And uh, in the course then of that year's worth of observations, he, he basically <clears throat> uh, plotted up a, a graph of where this star was located in the sky, and it did shift back and forth in a one-year period, reflecting the motion of the Earth. Everything fit, everything was right. And so that 61 Cygni became the first star to have a measured parallax. And when he turned that into uh, a distance, it came out to be about 10 light years away. This dropped a lot of jaws when they realized how far that really was. Well, as I said, astronomers by that time had a sense that they were dealing with a really difficult problem because, in fact, the stars must be extremely far away. So they weren't taken completely by surprise, but nonetheless, it was really a stunning number. I mean, 10 light years. Each light year is about 6 trillion miles. So we're talking an enormous distance to one of the nearest stars to our solar system. You know, this is not some far-flung star. This is one of our neighbors, basically, being approximately 60 trillion miles away. This is why, by the way, this is why astronomers 
were not able to detect these subtle parallax wobbles because they were just so, so tiny, they were extremely difficult to detect. I should note that uh, in the 60 years after the first three stars uh, had their distances determined using parallax, there was still less than 100. It's a method that really can only be applied to the closest stars, but we now have some satellites up. You mentioned at the close of your book that's going to allow us to get some really good measurements on, on some of these closer stars. Yeah, the breakthrough came in the uh, early and mid-1990s with a satellite called Hipparchos, which measured the, the parallaxes, therefore the distances, to several million stars. So uh, we now have accurate distances to a large number of stars out to about 500 light years or so. But to put that into perspective, it's 30,000 light years from us in the solar system to this, just the center of our galaxy. So even with millions of stars' distances measured, we still have sort of an accurate map of just our local region of the galaxy. It will be up to the next generation of parallax measuring uh, spacecraft to basically map out accurately uh, our entire galaxy. And uh, one measurement of parallax that's very easy for you to manage, dear listener, just is to type in radioparallax.com. And we advise you to do that for far more science than we could throw together for one show today. And there's a lot, a lot waiting for you to discover in our archives, and we do hope you take a run at it. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan, as were all of the segments that you heard during this past hour. Mr. Miller has been so inspired by our look back at science and technology that he's decided to now donate his body to a medical school. Uh, yeah, let me clarify that. Not till after I'm dead. Yes, yes. All right, I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax. Uh, next time we meet up, we're going to have some fresh material for you. We'll see you then. 